You may be seated. The two scripture readings for today's message are found there on page 10 in your bulletin. A few verses from Exodus 19 and then from Exodus 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And in chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord our God, we pray now for the moving of your spirit with your word in a mighty way. In Jesus we ask. Amen. So my aim in this short series of sermons is to help you and me know something about ourselves that is just not at all visibly obvious, and that is that on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, he was transferring his prophetic mission, his mission as God's prophet, to the church, to you and me. That's not, it's not obvious that you and I are now the Lord's prophets, that we now have Jesus' prophetic mission in the world. But it will always be the case that God has a life-giving word for the world, and the only question is, through whom, are those, through whom is that word going to come? And Jesus is not walking around on the earth anymore, preaching the good news of his kingdom. You and I are now the conduits through which that life-giving word of God is coming to the world. Now, that's a lot to absorb, and I'm, you know, we're trying to find a way to maybe get some understanding of that and some guidance on how to you know, fulfill that prophethood And so we've turned in in the the last six messages of this series to the prophets before Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting as we look to these prophets and try to get some understanding of what we're supposed to be doing from what they, who they were and what they did. I'm I'm not in any way trying to create one-to-one correlations like you're Jonah, watch out for big fish, you know, or like you're you're Jeremiah. It's not that you're Moses. It's not that it's not like that. I'm, I'm very aware of the danger of false analogies here. But what I think what we're able to see in looking at some of these prophets before Jesus, is just so we're able to get some insight into kind of the deep principles of prophethood. What, what's really involved in being a mouthpiece, a mouth, mouthpiece of God's life-giving word to the world? And, you know, Abraham was the first we looked at, and he was a very significant starting point, because like all prophets, God speaks to Abraham. He reveals his word to Abraham, but it's actually really interesting to notice that Abraham 
He ministers God's word to bless the nations, not by preaching it. He doesn't minister God's word for the blessing of nations by preaching, but by praying the word of God and by living the word of God in his household. And that is so very crucial because what it reminds us of right out of the gate, Abraham's the first prophet, the first person that God identifies as a prophet, and we're reminded right out of the gate that prophetic people are first and foremost people who are formed by the word of God. Are you with me? The first thing a prophet is, is a person formed by the word that before he, ever, he or she ever starts speaking the word of God, there's this formation. You know, and, and the way to think about this is if, if all the lights were turned out and the windows were boarded up and this room was pitch black and somebody was like, how are we going to drive out the darkness? How are we going to push the darkness out of this room? It's very interesting. Light does not drive the darkness out of dark places by thinking about how to drive out the darkness. You know how the light drives out the darkness? By being the light. It's just by being what it is, and that's prophetic. You're full of the Word. You're full of God, and, and then that creates prophethood, and, and, and it helps us. I think that Abraham, Abraham's example helps us to avoid a couple of pitfalls that can very easily come in our prophetic witness, and one is pride. I mean, you know, I, I maybe have a particular sensitivity to this because I, you know, I preach as part of my calling, and, you know, there is part of us that wants to be heard more than we want to hear and obey. There's just pride, and we've got to be careful of that as God's prophets. The other pitfall is, as I said last week, reactivity. It is so very easy as prophets to be, have our message and our kind of prophetic agenda driven by what the godless are doing instead of by what God is doing to be all eager to speak out to all that stuff going on out there rather than being moved and, and have our message shaped by what God is doing. And so Abraham's mission, as we saw it, was not adversarial. He wasn't up against really anybody. His mission was not adversarial. It was architectural. God wanted Abraham to build, particularly to build a household, where, as we saw last week, God is loved and served as the king, Everybody in that household, their whole life is purposed towards righteousness and justice. They find their identity and belonging to this people and their mission. And the way of the Lord remains constant and stable throughout their generations, even as it embraces the diversity of those generations and of the nations to which they will come. And that was all, I hope, very kind of clarifying about where prophethood begins. But I want to turn today to Moses, the second prophet. Now, Moses, you say, you know, now, Ben, surely when we come to Moses, this is prophethood at its most confrontational, at its most adversarial. I mean, this is a public, in-your-face ministry. Moses walks into Egypt, arguably one of the greatest empires of his day, and he just dismantles Egypt. He dismantles their gods, their military, their pharaoh, their crops, their, you know, everything they put their trust in. He just, he just goes after the Egyptians, but I've titled today's message, Not the Warrior, but the Builder. Do you know how many chapters of the Bible are devoted to Moses freeing slaves? Fifteen. You know how many chapters of the Bible are devoted to Moses building a nation? 122. Almost ten times as many. Why in the Bible does Moses' confrontational word ministry occupy so much less space than his constitutional word ministry, his nation-building ministry. This is why. 
because it is a lot easier to get slaves out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the hearts and minds and habits of slaves. It is not that hard to create a Twitter account and start shouting what the world needs to hear. It is hard to get your life in order. It is hard to build a community. It is hard to build a people. That's hard. That takes a lot of the word getting in us to build a holy nation. And that's what we're seeing early in this series, that through their word ministry, and I really want to drive this home early on, through their word ministry, prophets first and foremost are builders. They are raising up households. That's Abraham. They're raising up larger communities of God's people, even a nation. That's Moses. Next time we'll see they raise up leaders in Samuel. But Moses is the people builder. Moses is the nation builder, the community, dare I say, the institution builder. And what I want to look at very briefly today is in his prophetic ministry, two points of focus. He builds a people around God's purposes, here in chapter 19, and around God's presence, what we read in chapter 25. So let's just look at these two quickly. Moses, the people builder, he builds a people around, first of all, God's purposes. We just read those, those introductory words in Mount, at Mount Sinai. And let's just think about what's going on here. You cannot understand prophetic ministry the ministry of God's word in the world. You just can't really understand that apart from the fact, and this is a fact, whether people acknowledge it or not, that all of history is God's macro story. All of history is God's macro story. And this is a macro story in which what God is doing is he is taking his human image bearers and he is bringing them to fulfill the purposes, the ends for which he made them. Are you with me? That's history. The, the big story in history is God taking his human image bearers and bringing them, frankly, despite themselves, despite their rebellion and resistance and suppression of what he has purposed for them, he is going to bring them to the purposes and the ends for which he made them. That just is history. That's what history is. And I just want to say a quick aside about that and, and, and speak to you now very personally in light of that. You know, it's because your life has a God-given purpose a spiritual purpose, a moral purpose, even a cultural purpose. It's because your life has that purpose. It is woven into our very being, even though we try to suppress it. That's why things in your life actually matter. Have you thought about that, dear saints? If your existence has no purpose, it has no destination, you're not for anything. And you'll have people say this with a straight face. People, there's no purpose. The cosmos has no purpose. There's, there's nothing beyond ourselves. We are not for anything that we don't create literally out of our own heads. Do you realize that what the end result of that is? Then nothing whatsoever about you and nothing whatsoever that happens to you matters at all. Nothing in your life has any meaning. It has no significance. For the same reason that if you have no destination then no amount of movement in your life can ever be called progress. There can be flailing, but it's not significant movement. It doesn't, it's not movement that means anything because there's no destination. And it is so, God, so it is that God's purposes create lives where, yeah, stuff that happens to us and things about us actually have meaning, and they matter because of the purpose, because of the macro story. And at the heart of that macro story is what we call redemptive history. That's the core of this macro story. Redemptive history in which God takes a people, not because they deserve it, just because he's God. And he takes a people from among the nations 
And he takes them to himself, and he forgives their sins, and he purifies them, and he instructs them, and he empowers them, and he sends them forth by the time we get to the Messiah, Jesus, he sends them forth to go preach the good news of his rule and reign, his kingdom, to the ends of the earth until all of the nations, the Apostle Paul says, all nations come to the obedience of faith. That's God's plan. That's redemptive history. He creates this new humanity. He redeems them from sin and death and Satan's rule. He creates this new humanity, but his, all, his end game, the purpose of all of this, is to bring in time all tribes and tongues throughout the earth into that new humanity. That's the core of the story. And you know that Moses, he plays a massive prophetic role, an epochal role in that redemptive history. And you see it here. You could argue that God's entire revelation through Moses is really summed up in these six verses because what God wants his people to hear through Moses and to respond to with all of their heart, the very sort of marrow of his prophetic ministry is God's purpose to form, look at verse 6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is redemptive history. God wants his people to hear his purpose I am going to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, beloved, guess what God wants his people to hear today? Guess what God wants you and me to be meditating on day and night? What he wants to occupy our attentional bandwidth. What he wants us to respond to with all of our affections and all of our energies. It's the exact same thing. The Apostle Peter says... You are a chosen generation. You are a holy priesthood, a people of God's own possession, that you should show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It hasn't changed. God is still today in this place through this word. He is, he is forming a kingdom of worshipers and a holy nation in the world, and that's what he wants us to hear through the prophet Moses and through later prophets. And I want to no notice with you that building this people, as Moses begins here, to, to constitute this nation around God's purpose, building a people around this purpose involves retrieval of their past for renewal of their future. Notice the retrieval of their past for the renewal of their future. You can see the retrieval, especially there in verses 3 and 4, because what Moses does here, and what he does all throughout his writings, is he takes his audience and he situates them in the flowing stream of history, a stream that goes way upstream from them, and the waters are kind of flowing through their present. He points out to Israel here what we always need to hear, which is you and I have a heritage. You've got to retrieve that heritage. He, he brings out here the fact that they, these people, these newly liberated slaves... They have an inheritance of promises and provisions from God handed down from their forefathers. It, it, and you know what's awesome? That heritage predates their slavery. Egypt could not erase the heritage of these people. Egypt could not erase the fact that they were selected and their, their forefathers were chosen by God long before that Pharaoh came to power. And that just changes everything in the story. That heritage reaches back to Jacob, he's mentioned there, whose house these people still are, like a half millennium later, 
They are the people of Israel. It was God who turned lonely Jacob into 12 tribes. What a messy time that was in Jacob's life. He turned him into 12 tribes, and he gave him the name Israel that night when Jacob wrestled with God, and God sort of wrecked his hip but gave him the blessing. Israel, the name that means the one who wrestles for God's blessing and prevails. That's all, that's all in their heritage. And God, who called Jacob and Abraham before him, he still has been working because he's been their God all along, even right up into their recent history. He says in verse 4, you've seen, you know, you know the story of Jacob, Israel, but you've seen, it's still going on. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is their heritage. That's their story. That's who they really are. Not slaves of Pharaoh, but also not people now doing their own thing. They are people with this heritage. This is their story. This is their identity. God says, all the earth is mine, but I chose you out of all peoples. That's their heritage. And with that heritage, there come now certain expectations for the future. If this is our heritage, then we have a certain future we should expect. And also certain norms. We are this people, so we act this way. And certain values. We are this people, and so we treasure certain things. And we honestly have no use for other things. It's interesting how a heritage changes your values. My wife, she had a pair of earrings that she received when her mom passed away. And they, were, they had kind of gotten, you know, the, the, the gold plating had gotten rubbed off. And so I took them down to a local jeweler to see if I could get them replated. And I, they seemed like they were pretty heavy, you know, and, and I thought this was going to, you know, pretty valuable piece of earrings and we'd be able to get it replated. The jeweler looked at it and she, after she kind of examined it closely, she said, I, I don't know what to tell you. She said, there's no way we can replate these things because they're actually really not that good of quality. The jeweler didn't value those earrings. My wife wears them to this day, and she loves them more than the earrings of the finest gold because that's what a heritage does. It tells you what's truly valuable because this is my mom's set of earrings. This is my heritage. This belongs to my people, to my story. And you know what? There are many things that I'm, I just am not interested in because of my heritage, and there are many things that I treasure because of my heritage. That's how our heritage works. And the only question here in retrieving this heritage is, will these people gathered there at the foot of Sinai receive this heritage as their birthright and as their calling? And it begins with remembering. Hugh Hecklow says something that just, has been, I've been chewing on it ever since I read it. He says, people usually have a greater need to be reminded than to be liberated. People usually have a greater need to be reminded than to be liberated. Because if you are liberated with no memory, you're just lost. It is not freedom if you are emancipating yourself all the time, but you are selling your birthright because you've forgotten who you are and you've forgotten what you are for. That is not freedom, beloved. See, that's the fantasy of the modern world. We want freedom, always freedom, always more liberation with no memory. It does not produce freedom. It produces lostness. That kind of amnesia creates slavery because you don't even know some things ought not to be liberated. You ought not to be liberated from. I don't want to be liberated from my marriage. I'm only free to be a good husband if I stay in it. We got to remember. And Moses brings that to these newly liberated slaves. They needed to be liberated, but they need to remember. Now, it's interesting, though. Moses has no interest, and, and prophets in general have no interest in recreating the past. That's not what this retrieval is about. There are a lot of stodgy traditionalists in churches. They just want everything to be 1955. 
These prophets have no interest in going back to Jacob's time or recreating life before Egypt. They're not interested in going back and recreating anything. They're interested in how that heritage flows into the present and into the future, and that's the renewal. Even as prophets retrieve the past, what people are for, what a particular people are for, what they're doing is they're sketching the shape of God's purpose going forward. They're calling us, as they retrieve our past, they are calling us to become what we are in fresh ways. The German writer Goethe says, what you have as heritage, take now as task, for thus you will make it your own. What you have as heritage, take now as task, for thus you will make it your own. And that's what prophets do. They help us to imagine what will be possible as we obey God. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. You will be that kingdom of priests and holy nation. And prophets help us imagine what's possible as we walk with God. And they help us plot out the practicalities of how to get there. They help us stir up our hearts to invest our whole selves in God's plans. And in that spirit, I just want to offer you, before we move on to God's presence, I just want to offer you, myself, a pastoral, maybe even prophetic appeal. As we close in on the end of 2021, can I ask you guys, please, you young people, any of you who are under the age of 30, can you look at me for a minute, you guys especially, will you please, before mid-2022, give yourself six months if that's what it takes, please, please, please retrieve some history. I am so serious. I don't care if you don't like history. History is our heritage. Pick a book. Can you read Pick a book. If you can't read, pick a podcast. If you can't find a book or a podcast, you know, maybe an audio book of a biography. I've been doing this recently. The 2021 almost drove me to insanity. And I have a stack of history books this big next to my bed. And I'm just religiously reading through them. And I'm not talking about these bogus histories that get written now of people scouring the past in order to score it you know, ideological points in the present. No, I mean real history, written because people are actually interested in what actually happened in the past. I'm not trying to score ideological points, and I'm just reading through this history. I cannot tell you how edifying this has been for me, how much it has helped me get my head above the waters of 2021 and realize, you know, wait a minute, this is a big old story. Retrieve some history, beloved. Teach your kids the history as you're retrieving it. Your kids need to know the stories of their heritage. Make sure you have read to them the story parts of the Bible. Don't read them Leviticus. That'll come. Don't even read them Romans. That'll come. Read Genesis. Read the first part of Joshua. Read Judges. Read Samuel. Read Kings. Tell them the stories. Until the, your daughters want to be like the daughters of Zelophehad and like Hannah and Ruth and Esther and your sons want to be like Jacob and, and like Daniel and David. Read the story. Retrieve some history, man. You are lost in your present moment if you don't know your heritage and the story of which you're a part. And make that retrieval personal too. Have some memorial celebrations. Remember some things God has done in your past and throw a, throw a party. Invite some friends celebrate it. Journal, man. Journal so you can go back and read God's work. You can remember your heritage and, and listen to some other people. Some of my best conversations in my whole life have been sitting around, especially with older people, and just listening to them tell stories and realizing, wow, this is part of my people, part of my heritage. And the question you ask yourself as you retrieve this history is, what's our heritage? Where have we come from? 
What has God done? What are his purposes? How have they worked themselves out in actual, the actual story? And then how can I take that heritage as my task in helping renew at least one community I'm a part of? Will you guys please do that for me? Please do not listen to this and go out of here and let that slip out of your task list. Retrieve some history. We don't do that in our time. We're going to just contribute to the lostness of our generation. Now, more quickly, but importantly, Moses also builds people around God's presence. You see that in the description of this tabernacle building and its furniture and what we read from chapter 25. And this is the thing. At the heart of the macro story, at the heart of God's purposes through history, is this, to me, just endlessly stunning fact that God insists on being with us. Why, oh, why? He insists on dwelling with us in fellowship. He actually says at the end of chapter 29, when they are building this tabernacle, he says, I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. That's the whole point. God wants to be with us. And the details of the tabernacle, and this is what makes you, you know, you kind of fall asleep at the end of Exodus because you're like, oh my word, you can't read about another, you know, description of tent pegs and all that stuff. But the detail of the tabernacle tells us that a lot has to happen to make that fellowship possible. It is not easy for the holy God to dwell with sinful people, to be among them and with them and in fellowship with them. And the detail of the tabernacle reminds us that God will go to great, 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 great lengths to make that happen. He will eventually kill his son to make that happen. That's how much God cares about this fellowship. Now, before Jesus, as you know, God's presence with his people is kind of spatial. You know, he's in the middle in his tent, and there's there are tents around him. And, but and since Pentecost, that's really changed. You know this. It's not so much spatially God is with us now, but spiritually God is with us. God is not just kind of in the middle of us in this space. God is in us. We are the temple. We're the tabernacle. That's what Jesus did when he gave his, shed his blood for, to, to pay the debt of your sin. And he offered to God his perfect righteousness in your place. What he was doing was he was tearing the, the veil. He was ripping all the curtains down. He was just blowing the whole thing apart so that God's holy presence now just permeates the whole of our lives. There's no more barriers between us and God because of Jesus. We are the temple and God is in us and God is with us. And prophets, as they minister God's word, they are people who themselves are with this God. Abraham walks with God. Moses is in God's presence. That's prophetic life. We're with God. And so much of the work of prophets is to stir God's people to be attentive and responsive, not just to his purposes, but to his presence. The prophetic ministry comforts people with this. Brother, sister, God is here. We are not alone. God is with us. God is in us told you how much Psalm 23 comforts me. Thou art with me. That's a prophetic word. And it's not just a comfort, God's presence. It's a calling. Something I ask myself for my own self, and I ask it for my kids. Do my kids fear God? Do they know that God is with them? And does that create a sense of refreshing responsibility that is not a heavy yoke, but is a very... It is a beautiful thing to put that yoke on your shoulders. Be holy where you are because God who is with you is holy. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit because he's in you and he's around you. And when stuff's going on and your mouth is running and you're doing certain things, are you aware God is here? And does that create a sense not of terror but of, okay, 
I have a calling. I'm to be holy because God within, with whom I dwell is holy. Prophets build people around God's presence. But here's my concern, and I'm almost done. My concern when I say we need to be in fellowship with God, we need, and prophets need to encourage us in our fellowship with God who is with us. I, here's what I think most of us think about. Most of us, when I say, beloved, let's improve our fellowship with God, I know that most of us, the immediate thing that will come to our minds is what? If I say to you right now, go, go from here and, and, and take some practical steps to improve your fellowship with God, I bet the number one thing on most of your minds is that word I actually don't like very much, devotions. That's what most of us think about. We think we need to go schedule devotional time. Can I just shake your world a little bit, your mental world a little bit here? I believe that most of what passes for Christian devotions is trying to inject a God boost into a life structure that is fundamentally at odds with worship and wonder and communion. I've come to think that devotions, as most of us practice them, are our attempt to inject a God boost into a life structure that is basically at odds with worship and wonder and communion with God. Here's what I mean. I look around right now, and here's what I see in the 21st century among Christians, as much as non-Christians often. We have so many people now in our world who are dealing with exhaustion and anxiety and depression and agitation. And the younger they are, the more you see it. We live in a stupidly prosperous time and place, and yet people are exhausted, anxious, depressed, and agitated. Now, I'm going to read you a few lines of Michael Sacassus and tell you what I think this has to do with our slotting devotions into our day. Sacassus says, The dominant configuration of modern society demands that human beings operate, hear this, demands that human beings operate at a scale and pace that is not conducive to their well-being. The modern world demands that you operate at a scale and at a pace that does not serve your well-being. The dominant words of our time are more sooner. Scale it bigger, do it faster. That's the modern society we live in, and it's not conducive. It forces us into a scale of life and a pace of life that actually erodes your well-being. Now, listen to what he says next. The remedies to which we turn, I would say including devotions, the remedies to which we turn may themselves be counterproductive because their function is not to to, to alter that larger system which has yielded a state of chronic exhaustion. Their function is to keep us functioning within it. There are ways to keep us going, like the medications we keep putting in our bodies to keep ourselves going and somehow not get depressed in a world that is fundamentally demanding of us more than we can humanly give. Sucassus goes on, not only do the remedies fail to address the root of the problem, but there's also a tendency to carry into our efforts to find rest. You know, nine more hours of Netflix ought to do it. There's a tendency to carry into our efforts to find rest, I would add including spiritual rest, to carry into these efforts the very same spirit that animates that system that's left us tired and burnt out. Rest, listen to this, rest takes on the character of a project to be completed or an experience to be consumed. In neither case do we ultimately find any sort of meaningful and enduring relief 
or renewal. So here's my second and final pastoral appeal. Stop trying to slot God into your day and change your day. Stop trying to slot God into your day and change your day. The number one place to start this, I am horrible at this, but the number one place to start is to start noticing that your life has natural lulls in it, but all of those lulls are now filled by what I call the machine. You know what the machine, another name for the machine is? Online. And our lives have no lulls anymore. You guys are under 30. You, 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 you tune me in here. You don't have any lulls because every single time there's a lull, you have a way to plug back into the machine. We're all like tethered to the machine all the time. And if we don't deal with that larger reality, if you have not unplugged from that machine to the point that it does not feel weird to you anymore to be silent and still for long minutes as God provides them, if you're not unplugged enough that it doesn't feel weird anymore to actually be silent and still for whatever minutes God gives you in the lulls, until you have that much freedom in the architecture of your life and in your mental life, I'm going to suggest something to you. You have not renewed your humanity enough to do much more than flare prayer to God. I know you can flare prayer. I can flare prayer too. I walk along in my day and I can shoot off flare prayers to God. But to sit and fellowship with God, really engage his presence for any kind of extended period of time, requires you to renew your humanity enough that it is not excruciating to do it. Which means you've got to stop the way you structure your life. You can only pray on the run so much. To truly commune with God, to have a sense of just his presence with me and just enjoying him being with me and enjoying what he's giving me in the moment, that requires a change in the architecture of our life. And if you won't do that, you can slot devotions all day long. The system hasn't changed. Be with God in the lulls. I'll wrap up with this. Like Abraham, you can see, Moses and all these prophets before Jesus, they're all pointing beyond themselves. It's interesting, you know, Moses, all this wonderful stuff, and it's wonderful, but you know, he could, he could not create with this whole Torah, you know, the word that means instruction, with all of the five books of the Torah, Moses could not create a temple of living stones. He gave Israel such a good law, but their hearts were not circumcised. But Paul tells us God, I'm quoting now, God has done what Torah could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He broke its power in our humanity in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the spirit that God has given to us. If God was present with a purpose in Israel of old, how much more is he present with a purpose among us to whom he has gifted that very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Does that get you excited? Let's pray. Move us day by day by your presence and by your purposes, O Lord. In Jesus we pray.